0: Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed. The family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah horrible. He he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelite sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up, and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. (laughs) He's like, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word Redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist, so he sends ten different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house is pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for What's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb? Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house, and anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings His justice on human evil but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of hearts. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrous in evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil <laughs> into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great. But the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together.
1: Our passage today is from Exodus 12, verses 21 through 28. We're going to be reading it out of our Immerse Bible to go along with our series. It's on page 101 in that. Exodus 12, 21 through 28. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, Go, pick out a lamb or young goat for each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin. Then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the si- top and sides of the doorframes of your houses, and no one must go through that door until morning. For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top and sides of the door frame, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel to enter your house and strike you down. Remember, these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. Then your children will ask, What does the ceremony mean? And you will reply, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck down the Egyptians, he spared our families. When Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshiped. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, now as we've heard your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
2: Well, good morning. I thought this morning that I would start off with a a couple of puns. You know, I like puns. Uh, The first one says, I accidentally handed my wife a a glue stick instead of a chapstick. She still hasn't spoken to me. Okay. All right. Think about this one. I can't believe I got fired from the calendar factory. All I did was take a day off. All right. There we go. I need a laugh track around here. I don't know. So well, good morning. These past four weeks uh, as a church, we've been immersing ourselves in the Old Testament, in particular, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we've been trying to read through it together to see what God would have to, how he would use his word in our lives as individuals, but also as a church. And you know how sometimes it's, it's been really cool, and I hope this has been your experience, you, you've read something so many times, you know the stories, but then there are times when you, when you read it and all of a sudden, how did I miss that? It means something new, God's word can do that. It's alive and it's active, always relevant. Always relevant, and so uh, so far we've, uh, as we've read through, we've read through the book of Genesis. We've seen the the creation of the world and of all living things, including of course humanity. We've seen the fall and and humanity's rebellion against God and their fall into sin, and and we've we've seen the brokenness that results from that sin. We, we've seen God make a promise to Abraham, this, this nomad shepherd, uh, that he's going to work through his family, his bloodline, to be a blessing to all people. A great nation is going to come out of his bloodline. And we've seen how God worked in and through the life of Joseph, this, this young man, uh, and, and how God turned what was meant to be evil into good and took what was meant to harm and turned it into blessing. Well, today we're going to be moving into, into Exodus. And Exodus, of course, as you've just seen in the video, is the story of how God delivers the people of Israel uh, out of slavery in Egypt. And then he begins to move them toward the Promised Land. And uh, there are all sorts of interesting characters. There's twists and turns in the plot and the story. There are great victories. There are shocking failures by God's people. Uh, but through it all, God is working. God is revealing himself and calling and directing his people just as he does today. Now, you know, some people have called the book of Exodus the fifth gospel. You think fifth gospel, there's four gospels. Yeah, there are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And what does gospel mean? Gospel means good news. That's literally what it means. Good news. The good news, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John about Jesus, his his life, his death, his resurrection, his miracles, his teachings and and all those things. And And the gospels, the four gospels are a great place to start. If you want to learn more about Jesus, about God, and how to be made right with him, and how we are to live our lives in light of that good news, the gospel. But why do some call Exodus the fifth gospel, the gospel according to to Moses, the good news according to Moses? Well, think about it. Both Exodus and the four gospels recount the birth and the ministry of of a mediator, a chosen one, that God raises up for a special time to intercede for his people, to to save his people, deliver them out of slavery. In Moses' case, he delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. In Jesus' case, he comes and and he's the perfect mediator and sacrifice, the redeemer, he delivers us out of slavery to sin and Satan and death. Both focus on a covenant that God makes with his people, uh, an agreement that God makes that forms a new way for people to relate to him moving forward. So if you want to think about it, the book of Exodus really is a sort of a type. It's a, it's a foreshadowing that that points to and prepares us for the ultimate good news of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. So let's dig into this, uh, this so-called fifth gospel. And we're going to focus in on chapter 12, uh, a portion of which was just read. It speaks about this idea of the Passover, so take a look at this passage, and we're going to pull out three things that, that we need to know about ourselves and how God meets our needs in, in regard to these three things. Before we do that, though, at the beginning of the year, you get a calendar. You do this, you get, you get a calendar, maybe a physical calendar, or you get a, your phone, and you begin to highlight and circle certain things, certain dates, right? Because they're important. You do not want to forget those dates. They're important to you. So you might circle a birthday or an anniversary, you, you might circle um, a big event, homecoming, or, or, or whatever it might be, but usually they're going to be really big things that you do not want to forget. Uh, we, we, we observe all sorts of dates like this because from that day forward, something has changed in our life, the birth of a child, the, the birth of a marriage. Perhaps it's a day where you came clean and you've been sober ever since. So you remember that date, you celebrate that date because it's important to you, and your life has never been the same since that date. Well, when Exodus was written, uh, the calendars were organized around primarily harvest. And so the end of the harvest in the fall was sort of their January. That's when the year ended and, and then the new year would begin. And um, the, well, in this passage, God is telling the, uh, the Israelites, I'm going to redefine your calendar. I'm going to give you a date that you must circle and remember and never, ever forget and he gives us, he says, I'm, I want you to circle this state. It's going to redefine your reality. And, and it becomes because as human beings, we need a new beginning. We need a new orientation to God. Take a look at this in, uh, in chapter 12, the first two verses. These are kind of bookends to this. The Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Okay, the calendar has changed now. This is the first month. This is your January first. This is a day to remember, and each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. And this is a law for all time. So here's what God is saying. As human beings, we need a new beginning. We need this date. Uh, This reality needs to be defined around a single decisive event becomes the most important thing about us. And we're going to come to that in just a minute. But we see examples of this in our world, right? When we lived in Canada, July 1st, 1867. Canada Day. States, July 4th, 1776. Uh, Jesus observed the Passover. And this Passover was to be this new day that defined everything. Uh, Listen to what Jesus said about Passover. Uh, on the night when he was betrayed, before he went to the cross. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We do this when we celebrate communion, don't we? He, said, he took the cup and said, this cup is, the, is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is telling his disciples and us, he's pointing us to this new beginning we can have through what he's done for us on the cross. It's a new beginning it's, it's a, what we can orient in our lives around from now on, the event of the cross, the, the, the Passover points to the cross, a spotless lamb who gives his life and sheds his blood for our sins. Now, I, I wonder if I wonder if you've experienced that new beginning. I mean, if you if you put your trust in Christ, uh, if you've experienced that, if you've asked him to forgive your sins, uh, that, that's that's crucial. That is so, so important. It has to be more than just head knowledge. It must move to our heart and orient our lives. It's new reality. Uh, I like how um, John Bunyan describes this happening in the life of a person in Pilgrim's Progress. He writes this character, Christian. He ran till he came to a small hill, at the top of which stood a cross, and at the bottom of which was a tomb. And I saw in my dream that when Christian walked up the hill to the cross, his burden came loose from his shoulders and fell off his back tumbling down the hill until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in to be seen no more. If you've given your life to Christ, you know what that's talking about, right? The burden of sin, the burden of guilt, the burden of fear and doubt and worry rolls off your back as you put your trust in Jesus Christ, as you're forgiven, and as you have a new beginning. And you can do that. It's offered to all. You can do that this morning to start anew with Jesus Christ. So we need a new beginning. But what else can we learn from Exodus 12? It says we're, we're not all, we're, we are all the same. We're, we're all the same. Now, if you, if you watch movies, you'll know the formula that usually works like that. There's a, there's a good guy, good gal, or a bad guy, right? And um, the good guy typically isn't perfect because we need to be re- able to relate to them. They have their kind of flaws or weakness of Achilles heel. But they're basically a good guy. Somebody we like. They're, they're likable. And the bad guy usually isn't 100% evil, I mean, um, but it's clear that one is basically good and one is basically the villain. That's the way these stories tend to work. Well, to this point, Exodus has been setting this up. To this point in the story, Israel is, is seen as the, the good guys. Egypt, they are the bad guys, Pharaoh especially. Israel as is this nation that has been chosen by God. And it, Egypt is the oppressor and keeps them in slavery. Pharaoh refuses to let them go. He keeps making life harder for them. But what's interesting is there's a twist, and you have to look for it, but there's a twist here. God levels the playing field. God is about to judge Egypt finally and decisively. Listen to what God is, says about this. It's from Exodus 11. At midnight tonight I will pass through the heart of Egypt, and all the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt from the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flower. And even the firstborn of all livestock will die. And then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt and a wail like no one has ever heard before or will ever hear again. And so we're thinking, okay, this is good. The bad guy is going to get what's coming to him, right? That's what you look for in a movie. You want that point where the bad guy finally gets what's coming to him. And the good guy triumphs. But what's interesting is what God says to them. He tells them to take certain steps to prepare themselves. And if they do this, they'll be spared. Listen to this, um, Exodus 12. When I see the blood, this is the blood of the lamb smeared over the doors. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. So what happens if an Israelite forgets to do this? doesn't do this. Well, they'll die, right? And is that going to happen because God needs directions? Because God's confused? All these houses look alike. I don't know who's Israelite and who's Egyptian. Is that why he asked them to do this blood of the lamb? No. Listen to this. The point is this. This is from a book, Exodus for You. The Israelites deserve the judgment of death just as much the Egyptians. If this was simply a story of political liberation, then Israel would be the innocent victims. They wouldn't need to fear judgment, but the truth is is that they were sinners deserving of death. The Israelites had to daub the blood on the doorpost precisely because they were as guilty as the Egyptians and so needed a substitute to die in their place if they were to avoid the judgment of death. The blood is daubed around the doors, not because God cannot tell who is inside the house, but because He can. He knows there are sinners. Inside, the Israelites are not saved because they are righteous. They are saved because of the blood of the lamb. You see, we are all the same. We have all sinned. We are all far short of God's glory. The Bible says there is none righteous, not one. And therefore, there is no room for pride toward anybody else because we've all been corrupted by sin and by living in a broken and fallen world. Years ago, a pastor traveled to Ecuador and he was struck by, by what he saw, just the, the conditions that the Quechua the Indians were living in um, and, and just disease and disfigured bodies and bugs and stench and people living in a hole in the ground, calling it a house, uh, eating rotten food, drinking spoiled water. And they didn't know it. Why? Because everybody around them lived that way. That's all they knew. They had never been given a picture of what it meant to be a genuinely healthy human being. They did not know what a truly abundant life looked like. That's our problem as human beings. It's the reason we contend to think of ourselves as you know pretty good people, not perfect but better than most. I mean, sure Christ died for us, but He really died for them. But we all deserve judgment. That's why God is always right when he judges sin. And nobody is going to be able to argue on the day of judgment that God got it wrong, that God is judged wrongly. But there's hope. There's hope for us. There's hope for us in the deliverance that Jesus Christ offers, the spotless and perfect Lamb of God. And we can run to him because there is grace for all who humble themselves and confess their need. Who throw themselves on his mercy. So we need a new beginning. We're all the same. And then finally, and we've alluded to this, we need a substitute. We need someone to stand in the gap for us, an advocate. So in the first few verses of of Exodus 12, um, God gives very specific instructions about how the people of Israel are supposed to observe the Passover. They're to take a lamb, spotless and, and, and without blemish, and at twilight, At the appointed hour, they're all supposed to slaughter their lambs and then spread the blood over the doors. Why does this have to happen? Well, it has to do with what happens later that night. We continue the story. Verse 29, And that night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon, and even the firstborn of their livestock were killed. So the only ones who were spared were the ones with the blood of the lamb covering their doorpost. The lamb took their place. The lamb was their substitute. The lamb died in their place. It took the penalty for the judgment that that the people in that house deserved. A lamb for a human life. That's why John the Baptist, when he looked at Jesus in John 1 said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, said, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We need a substitute. All of us will be judged. The only question is whether Somebody has paid for the penalty for us. Somebody has given their life in our place. Somebody has done for us what we cannot and can never do for ourselves. And God does this for us. He did it for the Israelites through the lambs who were killed and the blood shed. And it pointed to the ultimate perfect Lamb of Jesus Christ. And He does this for us out of love and out of compassion, and out of mercy. Not because he has to, but because he loves us. Because he he loves us. And our simple response is simply to say yes. To say yes to the gift. To say yes to his sacrifice. To say thank you. To put our trust in Jesus Christ, the perfect and spotless Lamb, because we truly all need a new beginning. And we truly all are the same. We all fall short. But the good news of the gospel, the good news, is that God has provided a substitute, a sacrifice, a way for us to be made right with him, motivated purely out of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We are grateful um, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for um, the fact that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and His shed blood for us on the cross, that when when death comes, that it'll it'll pass over us in the sense that it won't be the final word. We'll we'll live forever with you. That we will no longer be slaves to Satan, sin or death, but we can be made right with you. We thank you for your perfect and beautiful plan that we see working itself out in Scripture your redemptive plan. And we thank you for for loving us, Lord, and for doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You made a way. You made us righteous in your sight. So, Lord, we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.